Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan, an Associate Professor of Medicine here at GW, Medical Director of the GW Center for Integrative Medicine and Founder and Executive Director of the Access to Integrative Medicine, or as we know it, AIM Health Institute. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the office's administrative director. Today, we're talking to Jeffrey Geller, who's a nationally recognized expert uh, on group medical visits. He's a family physician, chief medical officer of Kronos Health in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and president of a nonprofit called the Integrative Center for Group Medical Visits. Jeffrey is particularly well known for his work in creating the largest group visits program in the United States and his ideas about empowerment. He's on faculty of the University of Massachusetts School of Medicine and Tufts University School of Medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you guys today. So, Jeff, um, uh, let's start with something super basic, because I don't know if all of our listeners are fully grasping what is the group visits and sort of what is a little bit of a historic perspective here on uh, on the groups in U.S.? Yeah. So, um, you know, group visits, people getting together in groups, obviously that's happened forever. Right. And there's a lot of support and nurturing from being with a group of people who might be like minded or have a common goal. So a lot of people think of a group and they think of a group of people. And uh, what I think we're going to be focusing on today are what we call group medical visits, There are many different terms. You'll hear shared medical appointments, shared medical visits, medical group visits. I like to just call them group visits. Um, But group visits in the medical context are where you see people uh, together collectively as opposed to seeing them one at a time. It's uh, a way of delivering health care, a way of sharing resources, uh, having more time with your patients and uh, so when I do a group visit, I, I, um, I usually pick either an activity that a group of people might have in common. So we may have a group visit with acupuncture, and that might attract people who have chronic pain. Uh, I might have a chronic pain group for support where people talk to one another about chronic pain. Uh, we have addiction groups, so uh, people who might use Suboxone, uh, and they will come every week or every month or whatever um, whatever the nature of it. To me, though, what makes a group visit different than just a group of people getting together is the beauty of reducing loneliness, creating interconnection between people, building relationships. Uh, often uh, what people struggle with most in health, you know, are the, the social determinants of health, which need to be overcome, uh, or just the motivation to, uh, to make lifestyle and health changes. So that that's a big answer to a big question. Um, and Jeff, you uh, you've been doing the groups for over twenty years. Um, how did it all start? And give us a little bit of a historic background on on particularly your early program and then currently what you're doing. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, um, I don't know where I got this thinking from, but I was very interested in loneliness uh, coming out of medical school. And that would have been in 1990, 1992, um, when I entered medical school and, uh, you know, did a little bit of research. And believe it or not, there wasn't a lot of research on the concept of loneliness as a health condition. 
Um, mainly countries in Europe were leading the way. I remember uh, Norway and Sweden had done some research and they showed that uh, loneliness is bad for your health. Uh, people who were lonely were living, uh, were five times more likely to die of all causes, as I recall. Uh, and so I, I just really connected with that. And uh, I went to residency and I went to residency in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is one of the poorest cities in New England, continues to be one of the poorest cities in New England. And um you know, started to tackle the problem. How can we reduce loneliness? I, I did research uh, and the research showed that people who were lonely were using the emergency room almost three times more often than people who weren't lonely. Uh, people who were lonely were using our health clinic six times more often than people who weren't lonely. So I, I got to admit, I was a bit of an introverted person, um, not who will represent today. You'll hear me being very confident today, most likely, because this is what I, I know best. Um but it led to bringing people together in groups. How do you reduce loneliness? Well, we identified it was a problem. We did research. And because of the research, we were able to get uh, a grant. And so honestly, uh, I didn't know what I was doing <laughs> when I started. Uh, I'll be brave enough to admit that. But that was like 1996, uh, where I said, well, let's see if we can reduce loneliness by bringing people together. I, I received a very large grant by the uh, NIH and uh, was able to do research on diabetes and diabetes groups. And cutting ahead two or three years uh, of developing those groups, you know, I found um, that uh, you know the research showed that not only did diabetes, um, sorry, not only did the loneliness improve, but diabetes improved. There was weight loss, blood pressure improved. And so it became very clear to me that bringing people together in a group had these other effects, which were very, very favorable on health. And that allowed me to establish what people use nowadays as the standard billing models uh, in the U.S. for how you how you do group visits. Um, so it became a very sustainable model and one that was um, that I've done for now 27 years, huh, 28 years, 27 so, um, you know, really, uh, uh, things I've learned along the way uh, that make for successful group programs were ask your community what it needs. So the very first group I did was a Tai Chi-based group, and uh, most of the patients I take care of um, are from D the Dominican Republic. And uh, I'll just say they didn't seem to prefer Tai Chi. And uh, we ended up doing something very similar to what people would call Zumba nowadays, uh, we did dancing, we had food together, we did things that were very culturally appropriate, and our groups grew and grew. And, uh, you know, we started with diabetes groups and weight loss type groups uh, that were popular, and then we moved into chronic pain groups um, all back in the, the late 90s. Um, and, uh, you know, I continued to do research on loneliness, and, and um, you know, it just became clear to me this is how I wanted to practice uh, and then slowly, uh, we added every type of group you could ever think of. Uh, we had prenatal groups, which were outside the centering model. Uh, we've had, um, groups for insomnia, groups, uh, for children, groups for anxiety, smoking cessation groups, groups for asthma. Um, you know, and, and, and most of them are very similar. Just bring people together, have them share what they know, give them support find out 
how in our community we can best tackle these problems. And uh, it slowly led to a, a very large program. Um, and that was in a community health center setting. Uh, about three years ago, I moved to a private practice setting, which I call private practice for the underserved because <laughs> it's still in Lawrence. It's right down the street in an old Taekwondo studio. And we were able to start right up because my goal is to really have a completely group medical visit uh, practice, um, which uh, which we were achieving pretty well. And then COVID has kind of thrown us for a little a little loop. Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about how COVID has affected or impact loneliness? Yeah, I can definitely speak to that. Um, and I can speak to how it affects our programs. Because I'm quite sure that's something you've been seeing with your patients and your programs. Yeah, we, you know, the city I live in, you know, COVID is just one in a series of real tragic events that have occurred over the last five, six years. Um and so the idea of trauma, being traumatized, mm-hmm. you know, people being displaced, living, you know, being virtually homeless, living on a couch. Um, how am I going to finish school? How am I going to, you know, reach my goals? Uh, that's not new because of COVID in, in my community. We have um, a lot of people from Puerto Rico and the hurricanes devastated their families. Uh, Lawrence had gas explosions. uh about a year before COVID happened, where one third of the people uh, in our community lost their housing. Um, not sure if you guys heard about that. It was a natural national uh, news story. So, you know, our groups really are designed at um, bringing people together and reducing loneliness. Of course, the group will be called a diabetes group or the group will be called a chronic pain group. But we've been working on uh, mental health issues pretty much from the beginning. You know, the groups were started as a treatment for loneliness. There's a couple ironies. So so, so social isolation is increased, right? Um, you have to wear a mask. You can't visit family members. Traveling isn't allowed. We have a lot of people who are, um, you know, from other countries and their families, you know, don't live in immediately. And so there's a lot of social isolation which in itself is not good. And uh, loneliness is specifically the feeling that there's no one there for you if you really need them. And that can mean emotionally or physically or other. And so, you know, certainly as you think of the pandemic, you're, you, you don't have those resources as much. But the irony is we've all been through a common experience. So, on another level, when we all have, you know, we've started opening up our groups recently, everyone is just so lovely and so excited to see one another. And the level of connection is so much higher after going through the pandemic. Uh, in my practice, I lost about 45 patients, right? Mm. And everyone, and I can name most of them. And, and uh, you know, so we feel like the survivors are, are kind of recollecting and, and uh, everyone knows someone in our community who's been severely affected by it. So, you, you know, we, we were very lucky because we already started a transition transition to virtual medicine before the pandemic. So the nonprofit, the Integrated Center for Group Medical Visits, uh, was established so I could do some next level work beyond what I was able to do at the health center. And one part of that was I wanted to deliver virtual care to children 
So in Lawrence, there are a lot of single parent uh, homes. People are working third shifts and, uh, and the kids didn't have a lot of things they could do. So we had this program called POEM at Home, the Pediatric Obesity Empowerment Model, and it was going to be at home. So when the pandemic hit, I was able to switch most of my groups to, uh, to virtual. Um, you know, and, and there's, so we were very lucky in that sense. We, we didn't just keep chugging along though, because there's real serious issues with technology access for people who are poor or underserved. Yeah. So, you know, we, we never closed. From hardware to, to having Wi-Fi. Right. Being able to afford it, you know. Yeah. We, we, we did a lot though. We were able to negotiate for our patients a $10 a month uh, Comcast, I'll name them because they were generous. Comcast mm-hmm. uh, gave them uh, cheaper internet. Um, I was able to send my employees into their houses, which is something I couldn't do at the health center. But in private practice for the underserved, we could do whatever we needed to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Marisol, I'll shout out to her. And Crystal, you know, they, they've been working with me doing groups for 15 years at least. You know, I'd say, hey, can you go there and help them set up their internet? And you know, even with COVID, we just took the best precautions we could and you, you do the risk benefit assessment of things. Um, and then we've received some grants over the years. And if, if you visit our website, you'll see who our donors have been. And uh, so we're able to give technology to um, to some people who really lacked it. Mm-hmm. Um, but What uh, else is available on your website, on the nonprofit website? So the nonprofit, it's a true nonprofit. Uh, I'm, I'm the president. I don't take a salary from the work. Uh, it's really about promoting group visits. And so if you're starting a group visit program, you often wonder, what are the consent forms I need? What are the legal ramifications? How do I bill? And so we have all those consent forms and all those documents that someone would need to start a group visit program in a uh, downloadable, you know, put in your, your title way. Uh, we have had a conference and so that material is available. Um, it can be free if you can't afford it, but we ask for donations to, to share some of this information. Um, we have documents on how to do billing. Uh, we have information about what's going on in the group visit community. Uh, and as I mentioned, we have another conference coming up this year. Uh, so people can learn more about these things. We've never turned people away from our trainings or conferences because they couldn't afford it. When is the conference? Um, uh, this coming conference is going to be in September, I think September 16th and 17th. It's going to be a two-day conference. Uh, the first day will be really the people who are doing group visits and pushing the envelope, sharing best practices, talking about um, you know higher-level group visit things, uh, but it's accessible to anyone. Uh, and then the second day is going to be more of a skill building. You know, what do you need to go virtual? What do you need to you know, do those things. We're, we're still collecting uh, submissions for presentations. Misha, maybe you want to talk about cannabis in a group. I'm not sure. Uh, if I could draw <laughs> you, that would be great <laughs> with your amazing knowledge base. But, um, you know, so those are some of the things that are going on. And, uh, you know, I, I'd say the the most important thing we did during COVID is we stayed open because there were just so many people who, who needed to be seen, even though they were sick Mm -hmm. and we took the best precautions we could. And if you didn't have technology, you didn't have a phone, you didn't have the language ability, you knew there was a place you could go and, you know, we'd do our best to take care of you. 
Um, so, Jeff, uh, I think the future of groups is very bright. Uh, it almost looks like every large institution is now beginning to adapt it. I've heard uh, a couple of years ago a pre presentation from Cleveland Clinic, and it looks like they're doing something like 30,000 patient visits a year in groups. So, you know, you've kind of always been a forefront and kind of the father of the field. Where do you think we're going? I mean, what's going to be the next big thing in groups? So uh, I think I'm part of the future. So our, our private practice for the underserved has moved into the capitated space. And we're one of the few few practices, we might be the smallest practice, <laughs> actually, that uh, is doing direct contracting. And uh, what direct contracting means is that you're not paid for the individual visit. So, so most doctors or doctor offices are paid. Someone gets sick. They go, they see you, you bill them, you get paid. You know, someone has pain, you treat the pain, you get paid. In our model, we're paid for keeping people well. And so we're given a lump fee to take care of a patient at the end of the year, which was the start of the year. But we're given a lump fee to take care of a patient. And then the better we do at keeping them healthy, the more likely we are, the higher our revenue will be. And uh, I believe this is the model we'll be moving towards because it's really basically paying the medical system to keep people well. And what we know about group visits, as, as you heard me alluding to, some of my earliest research from 25 years ago showed that people who are, are lonely tend to be high medical utilizers. And so if you can reduce loneliness, create more open access. So my patients, they really know me. They can pop into a group visit any day. Uh, so higher access um, and then higher number of services because we, we take care of a larger number of patients and have a higher efficiency. We currently offer massage, chiropractory, acupuncture, uh, functional medicine, nutrition, um, exercise, yoga, uh, chronic pain support. Um, these are things that sound like they would cost more, but Actually, we're doing this in lieu of other the traditional medical care, and it creates more access for people and reduce co reduces costs. So I think the main motivator of group visits right now is um, higher touch and lower cost. Now, the future of group visits, I you know where I get a little concerned is you know we're, so ICGMV we're a national organization, and as a national organization, we know that there are. 50 different models of group medical visits, right? So uh, each, each group tries to sometimes license their own model and say, my model's the best. <laughs> and truly what's behind group visit success is often something I refer to as the group inclusion effect. So, so simply by feeling like you're part of a group, your health improves. You know, we, they've shown your stress reduces, you're less lonely. And in and of itself, that improves um, your health overall. And so um, the, the real goal of all groups should be to interconnect the participants, not necessarily to teach a curriculum. And so I think the future is going to be, you know, so all of these organizations have started their own group visits, just like I did. And I initially was like, okay, we're going to deliver information. You know, my first group visits were you. This is what a hemoglobin A1C is. But it turns out our patients 
yeah, yeah, education is needed sometimes. But really what our patients need, especially in my community, is support, is creative ideas to get through the barriers. You know, I can't just say eat pomegranates because they're healthy. My patients would be, where's a pomegranate? I can't (laughs) afford a pomegranate. Uh, How do you eat a pomegranate once they look at it, right? Um, You know, so, so we have to do a different type of medicine, which is, well, what is in the community? How can we change the community? You have, what to, are... eat, you have to eat pomegranate altogether. Is that it? You eat the skin yeah. too? <laughs> I always but, use that as an example. I think you're bringing in a critical point. I mean, the medicine is usually practiced as something like, uh, you know, there's a standard and everybody follows this. And here pretty clear that the process has to be very community oriented and community should really dictate at least in in some part what's going on in the group and you've really championed this whole concept of uh, participatory engagement by the by the leaders and i think in the beginning in some of the early work you were doing you guys had um, you would train some of the community leaders to basically become a co-leaders of the group right yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, when I moved from my, my last practice to the new practice, um, you know, I was on the radio and people were calling in on the radio, people that I knew, when are our groups going to start again? And, you know, we have, uh, everyone is just multi-purposely trained in a group. So we have an exercise instructor who's someone from the community that we've trained and we pay them to lead the exercise. But if they're not there, my medical assistant, she can lead the exercise or one of the participants in the group can lead the exercise. You know, our our group, some of them have been in existence for 20 years. Right. So. So, yeah, I I think the, you know, a true, you know, the facilitation of a group. So when we do trainings, we either do a didactic type of training or a more interactive facility, you know, how to become a facilitator type training. Um, And when we do those trainings, um, you know, some people prefer the didactic and some people prefer the facilitation part, but I know that the facilitation, how you lead a group is much more important than what the curriculum is. You know, if, if you make people feel invested, connected, important, uh, you, you know, they're going to keep coming and they'll, even if you're doing a bad job at teaching, they'll make you a good teacher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you mentioned cost, which I, I think is critical aspect you know medicine doesn't change until money is clarified so to speak so what what do you think the next research strategies because i think we have to demonstrate the cost savings and and how are you thinking about it and what are your particular research ideas that you're thinking forward yeah so i'm you know we actually are a test practice um as i mentioned we are uh we're working in an underserved community we're collecting low reimbursement from Medicare and Medicaid. And so we've negotiated a capitated care agreement. Uh, What that means is we're going to know exactly how much we receive and exactly how much we spend. And we will be able to compare that to any other community health center or any other private practice across the country. Right. And we are keeping very accurate data. Um, And so, uh, if we succeed, which is looking pretty likely, uh, then we will be able to share what we've learned. Uh, I imagine it will be a very big deal, Misha. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to me, I, so I, I have opportunities to be a leader of an organization, 
but I, and I am the integrated center for group medical visits, but I continue to be a clinician. And I think it's through leading groups and showing that these models work. Um, you know, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, Mm -hmm. that that will be the next level. And, uh, so I think, I mean, I'm confident we're going to have cost savings because of the group visits we provide and the services we provide. Um, our patients aren't getting back surgery. They are doing yoga. You know, our patients aren't going to the emergency room because they'd rather come and see me in the group and talk about their problems. And these things save money. And, uh, and now we're in a position to be collecting when that happens. So, um, so I, I think that's the next step. I know uh, Centering Pregnancy has put out some white papers about um, doing uh, capitated billing systems as well, uh, where they're looking for models similar to what happens when you're pregnant. So currently a pregnant woman, uh, uh, during her pregnancy, uh, there's a lump sum that's paid to whoever does the delivery <laughs> uh, at the end of the pregnancy that pays for all the services that go into it. And uh, that's worked for years. You know, I believe the VA system is doing some real innovative things too, because they are a cost contained uh, organization. I know um, uh, the Sam Welly uh, Institute Foundation and Institute and uh, Wayne Jonas were doing a lot of work there mm-hmm. uh, as well. Jeff, what advice um, would you give providers who want to start doing group visits? Okay. Well, that's a very big question. Um, when I go out to sites and train different sites and group visits, sometimes I go for four days and we talk for eight hours a day about how you're going to start your group visits. Um, but it doesn't have to be complicated at all. Um, if you are a, a practitioner, you know, you need to think about what is your, your best material? You know, what are the, the things you're telling every patient every day? You know, is it how to eat? Is it how to exercise? Is it, you know, what, what are, what is your, what are the things that you could say that are the most efficient things? And then go through your own practice list and find six to 10 people who might be lonely, who you think might benefit from support. It shouldn't be a choice of who has the worst managed diabetes, because you don't want people all with bad managed diabetes coming together in a group. It should be a group of people who have diabetes right? So that Mm -hmm. some of the people who are struggling can learn from some of the people who are succeeding. And, you know, so, so pick what, what, what is your patient made of? For me, um, it was to treat loneliness. And so as you're leading your group and you have patients who are more lonely, know that they're probably also the people who are coming to your office more often. And so, you know, you can kind of choose some of the, some people and put them in the group and, uh, and, you know, ask the group, what do you think we should do? <laughs> so that's the simplest way, you know, and, and create a safe space. Um, you know, I, I guess I'd recommend get training. We offer training and it could be free if you need it for free or, or whatever you can afford at ICGMV. Unfortunately, we just finished a cycle of training, though. Um, uh, in the end of April, I think we have a two session facilitator training. But you can check our, our website, www.icgmv.org, to find uh, when our next trainings are. Um, but, you know, some people are intuitive. You may not need to be trained to, to facilitate people. Um, but, you know, start with your own patients. Start small. Uh, when you start small, you're not able to afford things. Um, 
what my secret to success has been is being big. You know, when you're bigger, you know, I have a schedule. It looks like camp. You know, a patient comes <laughs> to my office and they go, I have pain. And I go, oh, that's terrible. You know, are you working? Are you not working? Oh, you're not working. Okay, well, let me show you. You know, you can do yoga. You could do Tai Chi. You could just meet with other people. Do you want to do a cooking group? You know, what do you think you need for your pain, right? Um, and okay, are you on narcotics? Fine. You know, am I your prescriber? So once a month, I want you to come to one of these groups. And, you know, I don't, I, I, I want to see if we can make your life better. Mm-hmm. And uh, not just here's the medicine. Uh, why don't you see the orthopedic and get an injection? You know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, you are an active part of your own care. What, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? And, uh, um, so by being large, it also allows us to have staff, right? It's, you couldn't have a devoted group coordinator person if there's just one group a week, you know, but, um, in our practice at the health center I used to work, I saw on average five patients an hour, if not more, doing group visits. And the average clinician was seeing 2.3 patients an hour. And uh, that's at a federally qualified health center where, you know, there are barriers to seeing people. And so by using that economy of scale, I was able to say, hey, look, let's use some of that extra revenue to pay for an exercise instructor, pay for a group coordinator, you know, so it really amounted to quite a bit. And now that I'm in private practice, we're seeing the same thing. I'm seeing about twice as many patients as the other providers in our group. Misha, I don't know about you, but this is so inspiring to hear this. Well, so Janet, I know all this already. So it's not (laughs) (laughs) my my main thing I got out of this is the fact that uh, I think once we actually show how the capitated model compares to the standard, that's probably going to be a mudslide because that's what everybody's after nowadays. So if they, that insurance will go after this, once insurance go after this, then that's it. I mean, then it wouldn't matter what academic centers are doing because I actually think that they've been much slower at adapting this than they should be. I think there's just a lot of entrepreneurship that's happening and a lot of small practices adapting it and some academic centers, but not as much as I would like to see. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of hesitation Um, uh, over the years. You know, I've often been been challenged. You know, someone will say, is it fraudulent? You know, is there HIPAA violation? Is there, you know, and they'll point out all of these things. And, um, you know, I say, well, look, I'm not earning any more money than anyone else. You know, actually, I've earned less in my current job. Um, I uh, patients seem to be getting better care. There are no complaints. Uh, we're giving free services to people, you know, uh, and, and the insurance company doesn't have to pay extra. You know, they're not paying extra for us to give someone a massage. You know, we just we do that because we think it's the right type of care. And so uh, over these 28 years, it's, it's always been just so clear to me, like, this is the way we're going, you know, almost like electric cars. There's a, there's a resistance to it because, you know, but how are you going to fuel them? What about batteries? Isn't it wasteful, right? <laughs> it's, right. But it turns out, no, no, that's not true. It's actually more efficient. And it's so, um, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, we're going to need another two or three years of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find out our first glimpse this July, right? So we started uh, last April mm-hmm. in this capitated model contract with direct contracting. And um, 
in uh, in April, uh, they tell us, you know, kind of how we're doing. And then in July, they actually pay us. So one of the things that uh, has been a struggle, and it's just been a personal sacrifice for me and all the other clinicians that work with us who are really great people who want to do amazing things for the community and change medicine, right? So that's that's the position we're coming from. Um, and we're in a fortunate position where, uh, you know, you, you, we couldn't have taken this leap if I was in, you know, extreme debt, you know, and, and things like that. So um, we've had to go this whole year not collecting any money on our Medicare, Medicaid patients uh, because uh, we have to figure out what the capitated fee will be at the end of the year. And so a lot of practices can't do that. And so for for that reason, small practices like us generally don't. <laughs> We've tightened our belts. We're getting through it. We're almost through it. You know, but it, it still seems like it's going to favor these larger organizations and larger companies. And they have their own, you know, constructs, you know, of uh, of what motivates them. So Yeah, we know AIM is trying to sort of lined up itself with when your data comes out. So we'll, I'll probably be reaching out to you regularly to figure out, uh, you know, we've been trying to get kind of similar contract with one of the largest DC Medicaid contractors. And yeah, it's, 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 um, it's tough because a lot of this administrators and, um, you know, non-medical personnel, they, they, they don't really grasp this. And it, it, it's a little bit of a work upstream to convince people that there's value in this. Yeah, we, we, we've had some success, though. Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina mm-hmm. uh, recently put out what they think is the correct way to bill for group visits. Huh. Um, and so that allows us to say, OK, this is the direction that insurance is, is taking. You know, insurance companies, well... You know, I, I can't speak for all of them. I don't want to <laughs> use a broad brush, right? You know, but but my sense is they want to they they want people to get good care and they want it to be efficient and inexpensive, and uh, part of that includes integrative medicine. You know, and um, everyone has their own limit of what they think is good integrative medicine, what isn't. You know, where's you know where's evidence end? Uh, but but I think most people would agree that that. Building relationships, reducing loneliness, giving people their own empowerment, ability to choose their own treatment. Um, these are things that are going to have positive, you know, return on investment. Well, I think that's a great place to end. And I think that's all time we have for today. Jeff, thanks so much for joining. I think we'll have to have you back when some more data comes out. Janet, what do you think? Absolutely. I'd be happy to spend more time with you guys. And thanks for the work you're doing, um, you know, pushing forward uh, treatments for uh, chronic pain and anxiety that are more natural and for what you guys are doing in general with this podcast, getting more information out there about integrative medicine. Thank you. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks Thanks for listening. listening.